Good morning. Open up your Bible to Mark chapter 16. This is not the verse I'm preaching from. I want to show you something. Mark chapter 16. Everybody there? Well, you better, you better hurry up. <laughs> Mark chapter 16. Look at verse 17. I'll read it for you. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name they shall cast out devils. They shall speak with new tongues. They shall take up serpents. And if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. They shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Thank you. Let me encourage you in something before we start. All through history, since the Lord has went home to be with the Father, mankind at one time or another has been befallen by all sorts of ills, some of them pandemic in nature. One of the greatest in ancient history anyway, medieval times, was the Black Plague that wiped out millions of people. What we don't hear about is the many pastors and Christians who ministered to those people who were dying during those times and who came through it unscathed. Why? Because the Bible tells me that the angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him. You know, I feel bad for pastors because now the church is being put to the test. The church is being put to the test, my friends. You know, I realize we've had pandemics before. We've had sicknesses. We've had all kinds of craziness that's went on. But what hasn't, what's different? Well, it never affected the stock market. It never affected people buying hordes of toilet paper um, and the fist fighting and the craziness. I was telling a, a fairly young man this morning who stopped in for a short visit and he was telling me how fearful people are and I said, well, brother, hang on to your seat. You ain't seen nothing yet. And he said, well, I hope you're wrong. And I said, well, it ain't me, brother. Jesus said, the evil day will wax worse and worse. I remember back in the 80s, and some of you remember that, when the scourge of AIDS first happened. They weren't really sure how it was transmitted back then. I was just an uh, assistant pastor to uh, a man of God who uh, was really a good friend of mine, and, and Frank Berla, who was my pastor at the time. And I remember being called to Columbus with him. He called me, and he says, look, there's a couple of people up in Columbus who these guys are dying of AIDS, and they're in the hospital. And a friend of a friend had asked him if he would please go because nobody else would go in. Why? Because nobody knew how you caught it. And he said, would you pray about it? I said, I've already prayed about it. Let's go. I was just a young man. I had a lot of life left in front of me at that time. And 
I had people who said, you know, you really think that's wise? And I said, well, uh, whether it's wise or not, I know not. But I know that this is what I'm called to do. So we went. And when we got to the man's room, uh, they had these guys in the same room uh, for obvious reasons. And the doctor stopped us at the door and told Frank and me, and he said, well, you know, I gotta warn you, we don't know how this is transmitted. You know, if you lay hands on these guys, uh, we suggest, and he handed us gloves and wanted us to put on these white suits. And Frank looked at me and I looked at him and he said, I'm not putting this on. And I said, well, brother, I'm with you. I'm not gonna lay hands on somebody and have a barrier between me and him because all that tells him is I'm afraid. I am not afraid. I will not live in fear. I won't do it. I will pray for those who are, and I understand why they are, and I'm not condemning anybody that is, you know? So those of us who are not fearful, let's pray and minister to those who are and see if we can't help to encourage their faith in Christ because I walked out of those hospitals, you know, and we wound up praying for many people who eventually went on to, be, you know, to die of, of that disease. But there's been pandemics, there's been sicknesses and great, grievous pestilence, as the Bible says, that has come upon. This is nothing new. Now it's new in the fact of how it's affecting the world in the craziness that you see going on. But what does that tell me? That tells me that you're seeing the beginning of birth pains. You know, the problem with us is we, we never thought for a moment that we'd be living in the time of the second coming of Jesus Christ. Well, we knew it's true. We know it's true. But I'm not sure that we really believed that we would see it happen. I'm, I'm becoming more convinced day by day that we will see it happen because we're watching things come to pass. You know, Luke chapter 21, if you get time to go back and read it, you know, and in the last days, perilous times are going to come, you know. And he said, there's a nation will rise against nation and wars and rumors of wars and seas and the waves roaring and men's hearts failing them for fear, for looking after those things which are coming upon the earth. Anyway, when he gets down to the bottom, he says, when you see all these things begin to come to pass, then lift your head for your redemption draws nigh, you know. Um, we're living in a world that's very fearful. This is something that the Lord has really opened my eyes to. How much fear, not just in the world, but in the church too. How much fear that there really is. And listen, you know, the Bible says perfect love cast out all fear. You know, um, if we succumb to it, here's my point, and then I'll, we'll get to our study. If we succumb to it, in the face of scripture, where God talks about the issue of pestilence and how he will protect us from it, not just in the New Testament, in the Old also. So the whole word of God, God makes his promise. If we will simply minister in those times of pestilence, that God will protect you from it. I believe that. I believe that. And I wanna help others who maybe are not, maybe they're not there yet. I wanna help them to get there. So during this time, when fear is gripping everybody. Um, let's be a beacon of hope because just like my wife was trying to minister to that woman the other day, 
You know, she goes, well, everybody seems to be fearful but you. And it's like, wow, <laughs> when you know Jesus, you know. And I know that many people do know him. And they're still fearful because they're listening to the news. Here's what I would tell you. Turn it off. Turn the news off and open your book. Open your Bible and begin to read that more often, you know. So, but let's pray for each other. Let's encourage one another. And let's uh, use this as an opportunity to minister to people, uh, especially those who don't know the Lord at all. Um, but during this particular time, especially the next few weeks, because it will subside, my friends. This is the beginning of birth pains. It's not the end. But we're watching it. We are privileged to live in this time. You know, when, when they came to Jesus, you know, or when Jesus went to the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he told him, he says, you know, you can discern the sky. You can discern the weather, but you cannot discern the time in which you live. They knew the prophecies. They knew that the Messiah was coming, but they never believed for a moment that they would live to see it. So when he did come, they didn't recognize him. They refused to accept it, so they didn't see him. Uh, let's not make that mistake that they did. We know the prophecy. We, we got the word of God. We know that the time is short, and Christ is coming. And the fact is, is that we're watching the beginnings of it. He warned us of it, Matthew 24. I couldn't name all the verses uh, without eating up all of our time today that talks about the second coming of Christ and how close we are to it. So keep your eyes on the Lord. Keep in prayer. Don't be stupid. So wash your hands. Don't be picking your face. Don't pick your nose. And don't pick your friend's nose. That's, that'll get you in trouble That'll really get you in trouble, so don't do that. And, and you'll be fine, you know? But if the Lord asks you to pray for somebody, you know, don't be afraid to lay hands on somebody and pray for them, you know? Don't be afraid. Like I said, we're not gonna be stupid. We wanna be cautious, uh, but we wanna be cautious in the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. And so, not fearful, but, but walking in the power of the Lord. Amen? All right. Let's open up our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. And we get to cover one of my favorite verses today, or actually two of them. This study in Ephesians, I'm very excited about. Uh, it's such a great book. But this doctrine, you know, Paul, Paul talked a lot about the gospel. And he said, according to my gospel. Of course, Paul was the one who the Lord chose and Jesus, of course, took him off on the backside of the desert, we found out there in Galatians, and taught him for the space of three years what the gospel really was. And it is the gospel by grace. And we, we use that word a lot, but not many really understand it. Now, the simple definition, of course, is God's unmerited favor. Well, I don't merit it. I don't deserve it. Well, that's, that's an amen to that. But I like the term God's riches at Christ's expense. I like that definition too. It's an acronym. It's easy to remember that way. But it really is. And what it simply means is that all that we have in Christ, all that God has given to us, in total disregard of who we really are as human beings, which is wretched, Christ died for us 
while we were yet sinners. And he has given us all things, made us heirs and joint heirs with Christ and has given us the hope of an inheritance that is beyond our wildest dreams. That we will sit with him in heavenly places in that time when we shall be with him forever in the kingdom of God. And not many people really get that. They really don't understand it. But it's an amazing gospel. Thus, the word gospel, you know, means good news. And it is good news. So let's read this, and then we're going to dive into it, and we're going to take a little theological journey this morning. We're going to get a little theologic on you, you know, and uh, see if we can't learn something. This is Ephesians chapter 2. Look at verses 8 and 9. He says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. If you're taking notes, make note of that. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Paul spent the first seven verses of chapter 2 explaining to us that before we came to Christ, before the eyes of our understanding were opened, before we had ever tasted and seen that the Lord is good, that our conversation, the way that we lived before, without Jesus, had been a time of lust and our fulfilling of that lust. That's what he said. As we discussed uh, on Wednesday, our life before Christ was a time of fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And we were by nature, Paul says, the children of wrath, even as others. By nature. That means you came in to this world that way. We were, by nature, the children of wrath. We were born that way. And because we came in as sinners, we do what sinners do, because that's what we are. In fact, Paul made it abundantly clear that you were born a sinner because you were of the progeny of Adam. That's how you became one. Thus, we're told in Romans 5.12, he says, wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. Some people say, that's not fair. That's not fair. I didn't want to be a sinner. <laughs> you know, but you are. Too bad. You know, think about hereditary. When things are hereditary, nobody who is born with a hereditary disease asked for the disease. You know that, right? He didn't ask for it. Some people are born diabetic. They come into this world. Why? Because mom or dad or somebody in their family had it. And so it is hereditary. It's still a disease. It still needs to be taken care of. And sin, my friends, is a disease. The difference is, is it has an eternal consequence. Medical problems, of course, are only temporary in this life. But sin has an eternal consequence. Wherefore, he says, by one man sin entered into the world. And death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. So once again, you get that, right? All have sinned. What's the word all mean? All. It means all. There's none righteous, the Bible tells us in Romans 3.10. No, not one. So, Outside of Jesus Christ, mankind is miserably lost. And he's without hope. As we see people today. 
It's very evident during times of fear and frustration, isn't it? That they're extremely without hope. That's why they're running willy-nilly, buying tons of toilet paper, as though they think that's going to save them. Oh, dear Lord, you know. I mean, really? I'm going, what is, really? Toilet paper? That's what you're putting your trust in? Wow. It's crazy, you know? They're miserable. They're without hope, without sight of Jesus Christ. The miraculousness of his grace because of the wickedness of man has astounded every believer that has ever come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're, we're amazed by it. When we recognize our own depravity and we come to grips with our own wretchedness and how lost we are without Jesus, our gratefulness for his grace pours over into a life of continuous praise to his glory. A great example of this, of course, and most of you know who John Newton was. A great hymn writer wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. You know, he wrote that song after he had come to his own epiphany about Jesus Christ and his own wretchedness. And here's what he says in the song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. John Newton understood his own wretchedness. When Christ called him and opened his eyes to his need for a Savior, he became aware of his own sin and his own depravity. And the fact that he had lived in total rebellion, as we all did at one time, against God, he then became broken at the foot of the cross, but then made whole in the Savior, in Jesus Christ. Now, unfortunately, in the time in which we are now living, in these last days, and when I say last days, you know, so often people think we're talking about the next two minutes. Well, we very well may be now. But keep it in mind, the Bible says a day with the Lord is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. God is not subject to the space-time continuum, my friends. Only we are. So in the mind of God, there is no time. So when the Lord tells you that you're living in the last days, no, you're living in the last days. But he's given us things that we can look to to know that we are living in the time of the end. Jesus even told him, see to it no man mislead you you know, in these things, for the end will not come until. And he gives us many, many signs. And of course, the restoration of the nation of Israel was one of the greatest signs of the coming of Jesus Christ. And we're living in those times. But Newton understood his own wretchedness during his time. You know, and, but today, today, the gospel of grace has many adversaries who adhere to a theology that is foreign uh, to the Word of God and, quite frankly, is damnable in its precepts. 
And what I'm talking about is the heresy of Pelagianism. I told you we were going to get theological this morning. The theology of Pelagianism. Now, for those of you who do not know what Pelagianism is, Philip Schaff, in his work, The History of the Christian Church, it's a great set of, it's like eight volumes. It's really good. I, I loved it when I studied it. But he gave this most accurate definition of Pelagianism, and let me quote it for you. And here's what Philip Schaff gave as a definition of Pelagianism. Now, before I read this to you, Pelagius was a man, he was a crazy monk who lived in the fourth century. And he came up with some very strange ideas and teachings. But let, let me let Philip tell you what it was. And here's what, I, here's what he said, I quote, There is, therefore, according to this system, Pelagianism, no original sin and no hereditary guilt. Pelagius merely conceded that Adam, by his disobedience, set a bad example, which exerts a more or less injurious influence upon his posterity. He was also inclined to admit that increasing corruption of mankind, though he ascribed it to, solely to the habit of evil, which grows in power the longer it works and the farther it spreads. Sin, however, he goes on, is not born with man. It is not the product of nature, but of the will. Man is, both, is born both without virtue and without vice, but with the capacity for either. The universality of sin must be ascribed to the power of evil example and evil custom. That's Schaff's definition of Pelagianism. So in other words, what he says is that Pelagius believed that man in his nature is basically good. How many times I've heard people say, well, I think that, you know, man, you know, everybody just in their basic, you know, down deep in their heart are basically good. Well, this flies in the face of Scripture, my friends. Totally flies in the face of Scripture. Matter of fact, in Romans chapter 3, if you're taking notes, in verses 10 through 12, here's what the Lord said. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are all together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Well, that seems pretty plain to me. What Pelagius said was, well, wait a minute. No, no, there are some that are good. In fact, he believed that all were basically good. But Pelagius was one of those guys who went on to deny even the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ, which meant that he believed that Jesus basically died on the cross for absolutely no reason, that you really didn't need it. Pelagius said that really what Jesus did on the cross was nothing more than a good example that we should follow. And I've got to be honest with you, that's absurd. Now, it's too easy to write off Pelagius as a 4th century crazy monk. It's very easy to do that. Because even saying such things as I've just related to you, most of you are probably going, well, that sounds nuts. That's because it is nuts. It is crazy. It's totally contradictory to Scripture. But, unfortunately, the teachings of Pelagius have infiltrated the Church of Jesus Christ in our time to a great extent. 
here recently, it's probably been maybe eight months ago, I got into a theological discussion with a young man who I had, uh, he had been over to my house a few times. And I, I liked him. And, um, you know, he was uh, pushing 50 years old. I mean, he wasn't that young. But, you know, one day he posted something on Facebook. And basically what he said was that there was no such thing as original sin. That sin was merely a choice. And I, I wrote back and I said, uh, spoken like a true Pelagian. And he wrote back and he goes, I don't even know what that is. And I said, it's exactly what you just said. That's Pelagianism. So I took the discussion with him to a private message. And he went, well, I, I, I just don't believe that. I said, and, I, and I tried to shake him from it. And I said, you do realize that what you're saying, if what you're saying is true, then Jesus died for no reason. Well, he didn't have to. Wow. He learned that, and I asked him, where did you learn that from? Did you learn that from a seminary? Did you go to seminary and I didn't know about it? No. He learned it from his pastor. Now, one of the greatest Bible teachers of modern times, in my humble opinion, is R.C. Sproul along with Chuck Smith and many other guys. But in his treatise on Pelagianism in America, here's what R.C. wrote, and I think you'll find it eye-opening. Let me, let me read it for you, what he said. R.C. says in his writing, he said, in the 19th century, there was a preacher who became very popular in America who wrote a book on theology coming out of his own training in law in which he made no bones about his Pelagianism. He rejected not only Augustinianism, but he also rejected semi-Pelagianism and stood clearly on the subject of unvarnished Pelagianism, saying in no uncertain terms without any ambiguity that there was no fall and that there is no such thing as original sin. This man went on to attack viciously the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ. And in addition to that, he repudiated as clearly and as loudly as he could the doctrine of justification by faith alone, by the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. This man's basic thesis was, we don't need the imputation of the righteousness of Christ because we have the capacity in and of ourselves to become righteous. That man's name was Charles Finney, who at the time was one of America's most revered evangelists, if you know anything about church history. You see, my friends, if Luther was correct in saying that faith alone is the article upon which the church stands or falls. And if the reformers were saying is that justification by faith alone is an essential to Christianity, who, by the way, also argued that the substitutionary atonement is essential to Christianity, if they're correct in their assessment on those doctrines, that those doctrines are essential to Christianity, then the only conclusion that we can come to is that Charles Finney was not a Christian. 
when you read his writings, and I have, you have, no, you have to question his understanding of the gospel at all. Yet in today's America and those who study history, he is a revered evangelist. But according to the Bible, he was an enemy of Christ. Now, lest you think that Brother Sproul was being a little harsh and maybe he misunderstood Charles. Let me give you from Charles' own words what he thought and taught about man's original sin. And this is in his own book on theology. I quote, We deny that the human constitution is morally depraved because it is impossible that sin should be a quality of the substance of the soul or body. It is and must be a quality of choice or intention and not of substance. To represent the Constitution as sinful is to represent God, who is the author of the Constitution, as the author of sin. What ground is there for the assertion that Adam's nature became in itself sinful by the fall? This is groundless, not to say ridiculous, an assumption and an absurdity, end of quote. That's what he thought. So what Charles Finney thought and believed, along with so many other Christians and preachers today, they actually believe that man is essentially good. And he has his own ability, the power to pull himself up, if you will, by his own bootstraps. This is what they believe. Charles Finney went on to teach that man is totally able to keep the moral law. Now, as one who has a Jewish heritage, now he's rubbing me the wrong way because this is absurd. And here's the thing that Gentile preachers always get wrong. Anti-Semitism has always plagued the church of Jesus Christ from the beginning. It always has. I understand that because there are some prophecies in Ezekiel 36, 37, 38, 39. If you read those, you understand why there is anti-Semitism in the world. But the problem with it is when they came to Christ, they brought their anti-Semitism with them so that they wanted to pick and choose, you see, what parts that they would keep right as far as the law was concerned and what parts they wanted to just do away with. And Charles Finney was no different. You know, basically, they went, he wanted to embrace the fact that, you know, there is moral law, which he wanted to keep, but he wanted to disregard the ceremonial, judicial, dietary, and moral, and even civil parts of the law. They ignore the first three and only give, you know, or only want to cling to the latter, as I said, but God makes no distinction, you see, between ceremonial law, judicial law, dietary law, or moral law. There's no distinction between it. Matter of fact, I loved it when Charles uh, or it was uh, Charles uh, Spurgeon, I believe. No, 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 no. R.C. Sproul at a conference was talking. And they had asked him, you know, what was the difference between ceremonial law, judicial law, you know, and moral law? And he said to a, a, an Orthodox Jew, there's absolutely no difference. They see it all as moral law. 
You can't keep one portion of it. Thus, James says that. You can't keep one part of the law without you know, violating another, and if you violate one, you have violated it all. This is the problem. But these guys wanted to just keep the moral parts of the law. And so Charles Finney couldn't understand this. He refused to acknowledge that God would somehow ask a man to do that which he had no ability to do. Charles Finney had been a lawyer, you see. And so when he approached the Bible, he approached it as a lawyer. And he thought because the law required, of course, he's talking about the moral law, but in reality, there's 613 laws in the Old Testament. God said you must keep them all. And Charles thought because God said that you must keep them, that you had the ability to keep them. So many who followed after him, you know, claim that their righteousness, not the righteousness of Christ, will be what gains them acceptance by God. But this they are willingly ignorant of, and that God has emphatically declared from his word in Isaiah 64, 6, but we are all an unclean thing, and all our righteousness are like filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. These foolish reprobates diminish the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross of Calvary and say that it really meant nothing, but it was just an example that we should follow. In fact, most of these guys do despite unto the Spirit of grace. And they will be like those in Matthew 7 who claim Jesus as their Lord and say, well, we've done many wonderful works in your name, but Jesus will say to them in the last day, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. Jesus will not share his glory with anyone. God will not permit it. Jesus is the one who did it all. By grace, the Bible tells us, you are saved. Through faith, and that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It is by grace. The fact is, we sin because we are sinners. We were born sinners. You came into this life as a sinner. And just as Paul the Apostle said in the book of Romans in chapter 5, starting in verse 12, if you can follow along if you want to, because I'm going to read all the verses. This is starting in verse 12. Wherefore, he says, by the one man's sin entered into the world, talking about Adam, and death by sin. And so death passed upon all men, for all have sinned. For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over them that had not sinned after the manner of Adam, who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by the one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation, but the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Justification means just as if I never sinned. For if by one man's offense, that's Adam, death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace, that's us, and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one, Jesus Christ. 
Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men to justification of life. And here's the verse I really want you to get. For by the disobedience of one man, many were made sinners. See, this is what Finney and so many after him couldn't understand. He said it was absurd that we should think that Adam's fall produced a sinful nature. But verse 19 exactly says that. For as by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. What does that mean? It means that you were hereditarily made a sinner. So by the obedience of one, Jesus Christ, one shall be made, or excuse me, by the obedience of one, shall many be made righteous. The imputation of righteousness. That is Christ giving you what you do not deserve. A right standing with God. And there you have it. Like I said, the Apostle Paul said that sin of one man, Adam, made all men sinners. That is, they became sinners vicariously, is the best way of thinking. They inherited it. Just like people inherit a physical disease, we inherit an eternal disease that needs to be taken care of. Now, and we produce the works of that. If anybody ever questioned that man is born a sinner, because what these guys, what these Pelagians believe, as we've read already, is that somehow man is born without virtue and without vice, but he's capable of either. Now, I could prove that that's not true, and evidently Charles Finney never had children. All you got to do is have kids. How many of us here have children? And if you're listening some other way, did you teach your children to lie? I tell you, nay, you didn't have to. And at a very young age, I remember Bill Cosby, regardless of what happened to him later on, he used to have a comedy routine that was pretty funny about kids. And he would talk about how, you know, he had a little two-year-old and the kid came in and he had chocolate smeared all over his face. And he said, you've been into the chocolate? He went, nope. (laughs) Nope. He didn't have to be taught to lie. Lie comes naturally because he has a sin nature. That's why people sin. And why these people? Now, here's the problem with this Pelagius-type attitude. It counts on their own righteousness, which scares me to death when somebody says that. But to hear people embrace it scares me so much for them because you have placed yourself outside of Christianity. You have placed yourself gaining entrance to heaven by your own merit. And by that, no one will ever see heaven. God has said it and declared it. And it is by Jesus said, if any man tries to come up any other way, the same as a thief and a robber. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but by me. He is the only way, whether we like it or not. I like it. I'm glad that somebody did it for me because I was miserable trying to do it myself. I've tried. I tried. So many people's like, oh, man, Doug, I was that close to getting it right. <laughs> like I said Wednesday night, that only counts in hand grenades and horseshoes. It doesn't count in the gospel. You can't get it almost right. You've got to be perfect. 
And the only way you and I are ever going to be perfect because of our sinful nature is to have that perfection imputed to you by faith alone. And this is why Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 is such a great passage of Scripture. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. The obedience of one man, Jesus Christ, brings about his imputed righteousness to those that believe. As Paul said earlier in our text there in chapter uh, 2 of Ephesians in verses 1 and 2, he says, you hath he quickened or made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. Notice it says were before you came. Wherein in time past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the children of disobedience. You see, my friends, that was your life. That was my life before God called us. You were meandering, wandering through this world according to the course of this world, which is a crooked line, not a straight A to B. Everything we did, we did according to our own will, and we did without faith. I remember one of the arguments that Finney makes in his theology is that sin is a choice. It's a choice. It's always a choice. And I understand why they come to that understanding. But all I know is what the Scriptures teach. And the Scriptures teach quite something, you know, that's the opposite of it. It's just quite different. Matter of fact, in, in Ephesians 2, and he says, but God hath in his rich mercy, well, let me, let me give this one to you first. This is in Romans 14. Because what these guys want to believe is that somehow God would not, would, wouldn't ask you to do something you're unable to do. But in Romans 14, he says, whatsoever is not of faith is sin. And so before we came to Christ, everything we did was without faith. So whatever we did, you know, every breath you took was without faith. And so without faith, anything that's not of faith is sin. But in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 and 5, he says, But God, who is rich in his mercy for his great love, work, whether he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, has quickened us together with Christ, for by grace are you saved. You see, everything that we did in Christ, everything that God has done for us has been by grace, through faith alone. There are those in times past and many even today who think and teach that God does not require of you that which intrinsically you do not have the ability to fulfill. But this, however, is totally inaccurate. It's absurd. God always asks you to do that which you cannot do. Always. Not to belittle you, not to make fun of you, but to show you his great love and his mercy toward you. In that when you turn to him out of your desperation, he in turn will do it for you. He will give you the strength to do that which you cannot do for yourself. Even in the time of the gospel, when Jesus had risen from the dead, you know, Jesus was there by the Sea of Galilee, and, and remember Peter and them had went a-fishing. 
And after the Lord told them to lower their net down, the net came back and it was so full of fishes, of great fishes, that they couldn't even drag it in. But they did manage to get it to shore. And then the Lord tells Peter, he says, go get the fish. And Peter brings them in. And I've often pointed it out. It doesn't say they, it said he. Now, just before that, they weren't even able to draw the fish net in. And yet Peter, like Superman, dumped it up. Johnny on the spot, he, he pulls them in. Why? Because Jesus had told him to do it. And just like the man with the withered hand. Remember when Jesus showed up at the synagogue because they wanted to see if he would heal on the Sabbath because they wanted to trick him and get him caught in something. And he went up to the man. So, of course, Jesus, having compassion, saw the man with the withered hand. And the Lord walked up to him and he says, stretch forth your hand. Now, I've got to be honest. If I'd had a withered hand, I've always tried to point this out, that if the Lord had asked me to stretch forth your hand, I probably would have stretched forth my good one because that would have been my ability. But that's not what he did. The man stretched forth his withered hand and he was immediately healed. Why? Because Jesus asked him to do something that he could not do. And because he was listening to the Lord, the Lord at that particular point gave him the ability to do that which he could not do for himself. It's his nature. So this idea that God will not ask you to do what you intrinsically cannot do is is foolishness. He absolutely will ask you to do what you cannot do in order that in your frustration you will turn to him so that he can do it for you. The Bible tells us in Hebrews 11, without faith it is impossible to please him. For those who come to him must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. Listen, we have no faith outside of Christ. Before you knew Jesus, you had none. You did not have the ability to have any. So it was impossible for you to please him. But Ephesians 2 Verses 8 and 9 tells us the answer to that, that riddle there in Hebrews eleven six, 6. What is it? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It's a gift of God. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. That's the good news. Therein lies the gospel. Oh, my. When I hear the so-called gospel of some people, The good news, it sounds like a guy who hit the lottery and the lottery commission says, wow, you hit the lottery for five million. We're going to give you 50 bucks a week for the next 500 years. And you got to work 40 hours a week to get it. And you know when you do the math, you're not going to live long enough or work hard enough to ever receive it. That's not good news. That's not winning, my friends. That's losing big time. But the gospel is good news. It's the good news that Jesus Christ has granted to you that which you cannot do for yourself. You know, he, Jesus paid a price he didn't know because I owed a price that I couldn't pay. And so he gave it to me by grace. That's the beauty of the gospel. God saves by his sovereign grace. He does that through faith. In order to please God, you must have faith, yet the scriptures show that because of our sinful nature, you have no ability to produce faith. It is God that gives you the faith. In fact, it was the faith of Christ that gave you the ability to even believe. 
even while you were yet a sinner. Had he not, you would have never have come to him. It's not of works of any sort, regardless of what some have said or regardless of what they want to believe. So today, we're reminded in our text that it is God's sovereign grace that has called us to himself. He has given us the faith to believe. He has empowered us by his spirit. He has sealed us unto the day of redemption. Now, let's go forth. Let's boldly proclaim the gospel of grace to an extremely fearful and dying world and earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. And Lord, we thank you that even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Lord, we are so thankful and grateful for your mercy and your grace that you so freely bestow and pour out upon those who you have called. Lord, we ask that you would bless your people. We ask, Lord Father, that you would give us the strength and the wisdom when we are witnessing to others to make sure that they understand, Lord Father, that it's not something that we're giving to them, Lord Father, because this is a list of what they need to do, but we're asking them to simply turn to you as you open their eyes to the truth, Lord Father, that they might acknowledge their own wretchedness and their need for Jesus Christ. Lord, we also ask that you would give us wisdom, Lord Father, during this particular trying time within the body of Christ. That we would be able to be a light to those who are in fear. Because, Lord, I know that things are going to get worse. Because your word tells us, you said that the evil day would wax worse and worse. But Lord, Father, we know that you've called us to preach the gospel, to share it with those that they might have hope because in you alone, there's hope. We love you. We thank you for all that you do. We ask for your blessing this week, Lord, Father, protect your people. And those that need to have a relationship with you, Lord, Father, we ask that you would open the eyes of their heart, Lord, Father, that they might see their need for Jesus and come to the saving knowledge through him. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the Lord bless you.